State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help with funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Season two of the Black Tech Green Money podcast is brought to you by Lexus. For over 30 years, Lexus made driveways the place to celebrate with the December to Remember sales event. Find exclusive offers on popular Lexus models now through January 4th. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Afrotech 2017, San Francisco, California. Michael Seibel, CEO at the renowned accelerator Y Combinator, is on stage fielding questions and gets asked a dual-sided question from a solo founder about one, will having no team prohibit her from getting into YC, and two, how to successfully raise money in Silicon Valley. I think the Valley is marketed extremely poorly. And I think that the tech funding world is marketed really poorly. And let me be specific. There's the idea that you come out to the valley and you have a business and you can raise millions of dollars to make that business huge. Um, That's a lie. That's straight up a lie. And if you think about it, if you're a venture capitalist and you have hundreds of millions of dollars to give out money, you like that lie. I'd rather have everyone come to me, everyone come here, and basically be able to say no to 99% of people than to have people trying to figure out should they talk to me or not. No. So the question that you have to think about is, where are you in the set of businesses where you can raise money? So if you think about it, right, the only reason why people are willing to give millions of dollars to startups is because they think they can make tens or hundreds of millions back. That's the only reason, it's not has anything to do with your dreams or your aspirations or what you wanna do in the world or your customers are doing good. None of that shit's important. When someone hands you a million dollars, they want to see 10 back. 
And it turns out that across all different types of businesses, there's only a very small sliver that can do that. It's unreasonable a business should be able to do that. You can have an extremely successful restaurant that can't do that. You can have an extremely successful retail store. You can have tons of, tons of extremely successful businesses cannot produce that. So I think the question is, if you want to access the capital here, how close can you look to a company that can produce that? I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Mercedes-Benz is partner at Lightspeed Ventures, a multi-stage venture capital firm with offices around the world. Previously, she served as an executive at a VR startup and a general manager at General Assembly, which was acquired in 2018, where she oversaw a multi-million dollar business line. She's an African-American of Bermudian, Grenadian, and Colombian heritage, and was named 40 Under 40 for tech diversity. I asked Mercedes about what industry accelerations are happening because of COVID that interest her as an investor. Yeah, there's been so many accelerations. I think one of the biggest ones that probably we all feel in our day-to-day life is the e-commerce acceleration. You know, as much as we all use Amazon and think about how big of a company that is, e-commerce and the penetration as percentage of total retail sales in the U.S. was actually really small even pre-pandemic. You know, we're talking single digits creeping into double digits. And during the pandemic, depending on which category you look at, some people will say it doubled, some people will say it went uh, went up to 30%, some people say it went up to 15%. It grew a lot. And and that's, we're still, it's a minority of the, of the sales that are happening. That's a huge transformation. I think we all probably saw happening and continuing to happen in the future. Another one is just around the way we do work. You know, we've heard of the that this phrase, the future of work many times where people talk about distributed teams and remote teams and how people are going to be able to work from anywhere in the world and we won't need offices. And that was always kind of a little bit of a pipe dream that people talked about and maybe a couple you know, very lucky adventurous people were nomads and, and worked wherever they wanted, but it wasn't the reality for most of us. And now it is, now we're all working from home. People have, you know, at least where I'm at in San Francisco, people have cut their, you know, apartment uh, rents and 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 left. And so I think this is something where we're fundamentally going to reimagine what the workplace is like, and the and and COVID has really accelerated what it means to just do work. So those are two areas. There's a lot more, but those. I mean, even also as we think about travel, um, that's another one that I actually think is a little interesting to touch on because you know. Even when we think back to 9-11, there's pre-9-11 travel and post-9-11 travel, and how we thought about security very differently. We're now going to think about health as a very different requirement for travel. And, you know, I'm going actually somewhere in a few days and had to go get a, a nasal swab. And so I think it's just, you know, maybe was that the acceleration of what we would think for travel? Actually, a lot of experts in the travel industry have been thinking about this for years. How do you, what is the future of health and travel? And yeah, we've accelerated into that really quickly too. For particularly, um, where's the opportunity then, particularly when you talk about the future of work and being distributed and even the retail side? When I think about um, anybody building 
retail and direct to consumer or whatever, you're competing against the Amazonification of everything because consumer expectations are now so high. You know, you expect to get it the same day or the next day. So it continues to impress me, you know, that you can be on Etsy and, you know, you can build a large following. You can be on Shopify, you build your own Shopify and do your own thing because of the expectation. I wonder how you look at if you're if you're looking at retail opportunities and other um sort of e-commerce opportunities, what is required from those startups or from, from those entrepreneurs and inventors to be able to compete in a landscape that is being in many ways formed by Amazon? Yeah, I think it's, I think retail businesses have such a hard time right now. I mean, depending on where they are in the country, some of them can't even be open right now. There are startups that are starting to focus on, you know, and and some of these have gotten quite big, the Shopify's of the world that are tools and services that enable these smaller businesses, the Etsy's of the world, like you spoke about, that allow them to have a direct channel with their customer and not to rely just on foot traffic. There's also even a new trend of uh, startups that are focused on um, live streaming shopping. They actually, these are really big businesses in China. Um, uh, companies like uh, JD Live and Taobao and Pinduoduo. Um, these are companies that, you know, some of them allow the small business owner to, you know, video kind of like QVC. Yeah. Like, you know, what we have I was thinking Home Shopping Network. That's what right, I was thinking about. Home yeah. Shopping. Exactly. And do it all via app and say, hey, here's what I have in my store. Do you like this? How about this vintage jacket? How about this, you know, craftsman thing? And, and then just have people directly sell it right from the app. And so, these ideas haven't taken off in America quite yet, but there are startups that are kind of working to even that playing field. Particularly when you think about education, I know you're big and, you know, very passionate about the education. Um, You had said the future of K-12 is a world of personalized learning. And and you you were, and this was a post about COVID, but K-12 technology adoption has lagged the broader market. What's changing about education, particularly regards to the new opportunity that COVID provides? Everything. (laughs) Everything has changed about K-12. You know, and I always used to kind of ponder the question of why has education been slower to adapt technology than other industries? Also, I think this is healthcare is another industry where that's been the case. When there's these industries that are very much so service-based, very heavily people-oriented, you know, they employ between healthcare and education, they employ some of the two of the largest professions in the United States, three million teachers, way more nurses than that. And when you think about this, you know, they're their their service is actually hard to automate and hard to replicate when you you know go through a top 10 list of what are the jobs that are going to be most ai or automation proof teaching is always up there and in the top because it's a really hard thing to do i don't think people appreciate teachers nearly enough for the multitude of tasks that they're accomplishing at once i mean they're caring for an individual and and managing their emotional state they're making sure that they are paying attention and focused and engaged they're trying to convey information that in a way that's interesting and unique to them. And they're doing that for 20, 30 people at once who often are, you know, so young that this is actually really difficult. Thanks for them. Um, so, so teachers do heroin, they're, they're heroes. They do amazing stuff. But I think, I think in terms of, um, uh, in terms of ed tech and where we're, we're going with K-12 and what COVID's going to allow, I mean, Everyone got sent home. 
now all these teachers are having to figure out all those tasks I described they do. How do they do that from the screen? It's actually almost impossible to do a lot of that from the screen. But what I think COVID does give us the opportunity then, and given that the normal way they do their job is so hard, we have to have technology. We have to have tools come in to help aid them. And I do firmly believe that to get to the goal of personalized learning, which is a world where every child is met exactly on their level for the information they need that's you know curated to their interests. For example, if someone was teaching me you know, back in elementary school, they would have done a lot about like animals and nature and they would have done a lot about music and singing. And like, if they could have framed every chemistry lesson with those type of, you know, inputs, I would have probably been really good at chemistry. <laughs> I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like understanding what everyone needs and being able to pull them along there. So to go back to what I was saying, basically to really have that work with live people and teachers, you're going to have to have one-on-one. You know, it, you would you can't do that to 20 people at once. And since it's not possible to have one-to-one teachers to student everywhere, I mean, unless every single adult practically becomes a teacher, you know, we're going to need technology and tools. And I think what COVID has allowed is opened up this possibility for people to use those tools and for students to start interacting with technology in a way that does curate their needs more to them. Their parents are going, okay, rather than just your one teacher teaching you this, I have all of my, you know, lessons and all of the different resources I found online, and I know which ones are best for my kid. And so they're starting to pull those in. So everyone's getting a little bit closer to personalized learning. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, 
a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbroke, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Um, you have a background in, in finance and obviously worked at a VC-backed startup uh, in a very diverse cultural background. And When you think about the unique value you may bring to a company as an investor, uh, I guess first, what verticals are you interested in? And then what do you believe is the value you uniquely add to the companies that you invest in? I hope I add a lot of value. Um, we'll have to ask the founders I've invested in. Um, but I invest in fintech, edtech, edtech slash future of work, and consumer. Consumer is quite broad. It can mean anything. Experience economies, social media, e-commerce, new ways to do retail, all of that. Um, and of those three sectors, I mean, I'm really passionate about all of them. I worked, as you uh, you know talked about earlier, in edtech. For several years. I've worked in the space in one way or another as an academic or as an operator, as an investor for the last eight years. FinTech is something I think I'm, that I'm super passionate about just because financial inclusion, especially for our people, is such an imperative. If we want to see equality and economic prosperity, a lot of that has to come through innovation and financial products. And consumer, I mean, most of the businesses, I, all of the businesses I worked at as a startup operator when I was you know, leading um, these big teams were all consumer businesses. So I just understand and know their, their playbooks a bit better. And in terms of, oh, your second question, in terms of um, you know, what, what value I provide, I think it, part of the value I provide is one, having been an operator, I, you know, there's wonderful VCs that have done finance their whole time. But for me, it's, I don't, I don't know that you can truly have the empathy that is really required to connect with the founder on that level. If you haven't gone through the trenches of what they're going through. I think back to my early days, I've worked at startups. Well, I've also founded my own small business. Um, it was a consulting business, not venture backed. So a little bit different, but I've worked at VC backed startups that were, you know, five people, 10 people, 20 people. When I started my own business, it was one person. So like the very, very early stuff of like, wow, I have to be on the customer support hotline for eight hours today because there's no one else to do it, you know? And just the drain. And I remember working 16 hour days, like starting at 8 a.m., working until 3 a.m. I guess that's longer than 16 hours. I mean, <laughs> working, working these, these crazy, crazy hours. And I mean, that empathy, when you talk to a founder and you go, hey, like, you know, we got to get your KPIs in order. We got to get your financial metrics and everything. If you don't re realize at the same time, they're sitting there super tired because they were up on the customer support tickets until 4 a.m. last night. You know, it's hard to have that level of empathy. So, so I think that's one thing that I bring. 
And then two, I think also for a lot of the founders that I work with, um, I don't know, I feel like I have in some ways a bit of a, a under uh, dog mentality. I feel like I don't think I was supposed to end up in VC. That definitely wasn't a thing I was thinking about until a few years ago. And so to me, a lot of the VC and tech world, even though I've worked in you know startups for a while, it still feels very foreign. And so I really connect with founders that I think don't find themselves fully represented by the tech industry. And so a lot of founders have told me I'm a little bit of a more welcoming and uh, someone once said, you're a really nice VC. <laughs> <laughs> To, to, to that point, to, to, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think about when people like you are in a room, let's say you're at an Afrotech or you, let's say you're not at Afrotech, but you're at any other conference, tech conference besides Afrotech, honestly. And there is, you know, two or three startup founders in there and you're the only black VC in probably many rooms that you go in. How is it, how do you manage the expectation of that person who may assume that you get where they're coming from? when you have like how do you manage the savior part of this because you're the you may be the only person that gets where they're coming from and having to balance that with you know giving them what they need even though if they're if they're ready for vc if they're not ready for vc being real with them helping them guide along the path when you can't be savior for everybody yeah that's a really interesting question i don't think anyone's asked me that before I view it as, look, I mean, I get a ton of cold emails, a ton, ton of cold LinkedIn messages. There's, there's just a lot of outreach. And especially for any cold emails, if I know it's somebody from our community, I'm going to try and go out of my way to make sure to respond to the message. There's just not enough access and there's not enough people that respond to the networks in VC that you need to get in to even have someone look at your startup the barrier for that is so high that that's the first thing I try and do is just at least provide some access, even if it's not going to be a yes, it's, you know, going to be, Hey, let's get feedback. If you want to, you know, hear more about why it wasn't a fit, I'm happy to hop on the phone and tell you more about that. And I think there's a, a really delicate balance. I also try and strike between, you know, being real with someone and telling them, Hey, this isn't a fit. You're maybe not ready for this stage of investing. And also just being, real, you know, nice and human and realizing not everyone wants you to tell them, you know, like, no, this isn't, this isn't a fit. And this is where about some people just want to talk. And I, I actually was on the phone with a man from Louisiana a couple of weeks ago, where very quickly into the call, I realized, oh, this, they're, they don't have really any context about Silicon Valley. But, you know, I, I think I realized like partway through the call, it wasn't exactly the purpose of what he was trying to get out. He didn't want to hear about me telling him like the KPIs need to be this and this is what it needs to look like and this I need to present your pitch. Like sometimes he just wants to be heard from somebody who in his mind was a tech person and he was also a tech person and he wanted to just kind of talk about business. And, and so sometimes I also try to allow myself to have that compassion of just like don't try and go in with, you know, giving <laughs> your PC add on. Feedback. Yeah, 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 too much. Exactly. Um, what's your philosophy then on those companies that you do engage with on how engaged you are with those companies? Because, you know, some VCs can be super in the weeds, you know, almost walking hand in hand with with the executive team you know, particularly at the early stages. And I get that. And some just show up for board meetings, you know, like what's worked well for you? I always ask my founders, 
what their preferred cadence and communication style is because sometimes they want to connect every week. Sometimes they want to connect every two weeks, every month. You know, some founders more of the are more of the type of like, hey, I got the capital. I'll talk to you at the board <laughs> meeting. And others are, you know, really want a lot of, of feedback. And so I, I try in, in the first three months or so give them that option to kind of set their own. And then if I start to feel like we're not talking enough, which this just happened with one of my founders, I'll be like, hey, can we talk a little bit more? Can we chat, like set a standing call every week, every other week or so? Um, so, so I really try to let them lead on that. And also I was just thinking too, to your, your last question, um, just something else I want to mention too, about the access and, um, you know, speaking to founders, it actually was at TechCrunch Disrupt a couple of days ago. I think one of the things that I try and there's, there's a language of Silicon Valley, there's terminology, there's kind of expected rules of engagement and norms. And I think those are things that especially to anyone listening, you know, on, on this, if, if you're curious about, you know, you're getting, you feel like you're getting stuck at a certain process with investors or getting stuck in feedback cycles and you're not really understanding why you're getting the same thing, like feel free to reach out because there is, there are these cultural norms that are not obvious if you're, you know, not smacking that dab in the middle of VC every day. And that's something I always also try and connect with founders on is, you know, demystifying what VCs mean when they say different things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you make me think about, um, I'm gonna say this, the, the privilege, you know, non-melanated, you know, founders may come to VC with like, look, they don't have, maybe not have the same sentiment, you know, black people or minorities come with, you know, where we're looking, we're hoping somebody gives us a deal. And, you know, our counterparts may feel like, you know, you're lucky if you can get in on my deal, right? And so, to that end, number one, I think we ha we do have to work on changing that philosophy that we, you know, too many of us hold, because like, it is an interview you too, right? As a, as a VC, so at with that stated, what are good from your perspective interview you questions? Because you're going to be, you know, spitballing questions to the founder on again, what are those KPIs? You know, what's your runway look like? What's what's the hiring stack look like? And et cetera, what's the tech stack look like? But what questions? that in your experience, have you found really, really good founders ask you at the stages of when you're doing due diligence and et cetera? That's such a good question. I think the, you're right. The best founders do create, well, one, they're really good at storytelling. They, you know, wrap people around their fingers. They have investors tripping over each other to get into the round, like you said. And they're also really good um, at, in addition to that storytelling, kind of weaving this, this scarcity kind of sense of saying like, Hey, there's a lot of people who want in, like, let me in a, in a kind way, not in a kind of like bluffing way. But I think that the questions that they tend to then have the leverage once they've, you know, laid some of this foundation to, to really, um, and I think people should do this anytime, but there are founders who kind of set up this thing where they have the, the upper hand by the long shot. Um, that you know, some of the questions I think that you want to really ask, and people point blank ask this on calls all the time. I think you always should is like, how do you help your founders? And that should be super standard question that a VC should be able to answer. Like, watch if they have a ready answer. First off, does it sound like they're thinking while they're talking? If they are, that's probably an issue, you know. And 
are they also able to give specific tactical advice? And then after, you know, they'll probably talk in generalities. Some of them might go into specifics, but after you kind of ask them, how do you help your founders? Ask them for some examples. Okay, can you tell me about a couple of examples from your portfolio where, you know, you helped your founders on some of those things? And and you don't have to, you know, tell them all the specifics, but, you know, just to give some, some sense. Um, I really love getting those questions from founders. The other thing, I that you actually asked me a question earlier that a lot of founders ask in terms of like, how are you as a board member? How involved do you want to be? Because there's, especially this can be one of the downsides of being a former operator VC. Sometimes former operator VCs really want to get deep in your business. They want to be building it right All right. They want to be rolling up their sleeves. They want to be on the phone with you, which can be nice, but it can be a little bit too much. And so I think getting a sense of like, what are their expectations around how often they're going to chat. I always say, like, I follow your lead. A lot of VCs aren't going to say that. They're going to say, well, look, this is, I set meetings every single week. You know, I'm going to, back in the pre-COVID times, like, I'll come by your office once a week. And, you know, and that might be not what you want as a founder. Um, so I think those are a couple of good questions to, to hit on. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! (laughs) And outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com customer. Terms and conditions apply. 
LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Season two of the Black Tech Green Money podcast is brought to you by Lexus and the December to Remember sales event. From graduation parades to birthday parties this year, Driveways hosted some new traditions. Here's to celebrating them all. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mercedes is an early stage investor. But what does that actually mean, early stage? For some, it can mean idea stage. For others, some traction or $10,000, $30,000 a month in revenue. It means different things to different people. Mercedes speaks on it. Yeah, early stage for me is probably closer to what early, really the earliest founders would consider mid-stage, even though that's not a thing. Um, so I'm investing mostly at the Series A. That's kind of like my target investment area. That's when, you know, if you're an enterprise SaaS business, you have 1 million in ARR. If you're a consumer business, you, you know, e-commerce, you might have six to 12 million in annual revenue. These are rough benchmarks, not, you know, set numbers. Um, and for me, what it means at Series A is that your post product market fit, you've already found your sales engine and your channel and you're starting to take off and you're really growing the business. And now it's about how do I add on resources? How do I add on talent to continue what's working and make it work? Other people, when they say early stage, they might mean seed, which a Silicon Valley seed versus maybe a rest of the country or rest of the world seed can also mean different things. Or they might even, now there's a new category, pre-seed. Yeah, because yeah. we, now what are we going to call it next? Right. Pre-seed? Right, right. Because <laughs> seeds are at a million dollars now in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, I see founders raising $4 million seeds all wow. the time. Wow. Um, and, you know, it. a lot of people are also doing where they raise two seed rounds and then a series A because I, I just think the expectations for what people are expecting out of a series A continue to grow and grow and grow. But it's, in, it's interesting. It depends on the sector. Actually, in fintech, where in companies are raising at, they're raising series A at much lower revenue thresholds and benchmarks than um, than almost any enterprise or consumer companies. But for most of the enterprise and consumer companies, they're, you know, looking for a later and later stage. With particular respect to black founders, um, and you said, like you said, you're investing at, you know, the A round um, primarily in with respect to black founders, which I know you you got into venture to work with marginalized communities and et cetera. Are there really enough black founders at the A round stage to make that mission, that personal mission you have or, you know, the global mission for our culture um, viable? Like, do we have enough black founders that are positioning themselves for the A round? And if if we're not, where are we falling off as an ecosystem to prepare people for that? I think the A round is probably one of the hardest rounds for black founders to raise. At least this is what I'm seeing. And and there are certain categories where there's more black founders concentrated than others. For example, fintech, there's actually a lot of black founders in, in fintech, I feel, relative to the rest, probably because they know the story firsthand from their communities about financial inclusion and its importance. Um, another sector where I see a lot of black founders is in a lot of things related to culture, Obviously, um, Blavity itself, you know, in his Black founders. And I think that's another great space, entertainment. Um, so when you, in those sectors, no, there's not a dearth of founders at Series A. I see tons all the time. Um, and a lot of the other sectors, it's a little bit more hit or miss. Um, and 
you know, I don't have the answer on why that round that is so difficult for, for founders to raise. But my thought is that it's because it's often the first big institutional round. Seed rounds can be, you know, compromised of a lot of angels. It can be a lot of kind of early funds. There's a lot of, um, you know, 25, 50, $100,000 checks, $250,000 checks that make it into seed rounds. And so a lot of black founders are able to do that. And then at the series A, that's the first big round where it's like an established, normally Silicon Valley, you know, institution that's been around for a while. And honestly, one, I don't think their, their networks are at most of these big firms are conducive to black folk because there's no black folk working at them. Um, and two, you know, I think that it's the scrutiny level is really high. And anytime the scrutiny level for a round is really high, a lot of bias creeps in because you're purposely trying to scrutinize everything hard. And so you start making a lot of like, mm, well, you know, like there's always something yeah, wrong yeah. with the Terry Fay <laughs> business, but it's how much you get yourself to believe that it's okay. Yeah. that there's something wrong with that that business. And I'm not sure that all marginalized and, and minority founders are given the benefit of the doubt when there is that thing that's wrong with the business. You had uh, mentioned in the previous interview that you wanted to be a VC to, among other things, be a part of the change. Um, as you were introduced to the world of business finance, you know, cost of capital and et cetera, that's things that you previously didn't know, right? And But the white guys knew it. And how do you view your role as an investor to think more holistically about investments, particularly because you're targeting these, you know, um, communities, marginalized communities? How do you think about that when you have to think more than just about returns? Since, as you mentioned, your passion is the marginalized community. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually do believe I'm very big of the double bottom line of the all of the B Corps. I do believe that you can do build really big businesses by doing good. And so, you know, when you think about, especially in education and fintech, two of the sectors where I invest the most, you to build a really big business, you have to serve the full population. You know, I, I'm, I would never, not would never, because I don't want to say never, but I can't really I see myself investing in an education company that only serves, you know, the top 10%, because it's just going to be a small market, you know? And so I think that if you're going to build these outcome businesses that we're looking for at Lightspeed, we're looking for $1 billion businesses, $2 billion, five, you know, billion dollar companies that you have to be able to serve the whole population. So I don't view it necessarily as a either or. Um. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because it segues nicely into uh, another quote I heard you talk about was from Jeremy Liu, who's your, one of your bosses who in, or who hired you. Um, he was interested in increasing diversity among women investors, racial minorities and et cetera. And, you, and he's a consumer investor. And you talked about um, he was the first investor, first check into Snapchat. Um, if a company has a large percentage of black women, Latinos and their their audience base is largely those things they have the potential to drive culture and there's probably, you know, a great, a lot of opportunity with those. And this was something that resonated with you per, you know, the, the interview that I saw and how has this sort of, you know, investing bias in this, in this respect, a good bias, you know, impacted what's important to you. Wow. You really uh, read my different blog posts and interviews. I feel very honored <laughs> great that you, you read all these. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was one of the things in the, in the vein of what you were talking about earlier, you know, make sure that founders you interview 
the VCs when you're talking to them because you're signing up for a 10-year partnership, really a marriage, and you want to know that you like this person too. I thought about the same thing when I was going in and interviewing for VC firms. You know, I was looking for a firm that was inclusive, that was going to um, view the world in a somewhat similar way I did. I didn't mean that we have to agree on everything, but I don't want to be shut down, you know, every single time I mentioned the importance of working with black people and trying to elevate black founders. Like if that was going to be the case, it wasn't going to be the right firm for me. And so actually um, when I was interviewing, I pitched They, you know, Jeremy asked me to pitch a couple of different companies and I pitched um, uh, what a couple of companies, one of which was a hair weave company. And, you know, for me, this was kind of like one of my little tests that was in my interview process with a lot of firms was like, What's your response to me pitching, you know, a hair weave company that's primarily used by black women? Like, do you immediately question whether this is a market that has any potential or do you kind of, are you open-minded and, or do you, or do you go, wow, yeah, I actually know the research and I've seen that big businesses can be built in this space. And, you know, I got a lot of varying responses, but particularly at Lightspeed, I was really touched that there was a lot of enthusiasm and, and kind of the response I was looking for. In addition to that, Lightspeed has a lot of women investors. Um, I think we're at up to maybe 10 or 11 out of 28, 29 um, investment partners in San Francisco that are women, which is totally different than a lot of firms. So sorry, I'm getting a bit off track, but one, that was what attracted to me and, and I related to your earlier question. And then in terms of, sorry, just to make sure I understood the rest of your question as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I think about the, the, the bias, you know, of looking for, you know, marginalized founders and how that yeah. plays into a part of how you think about it. Yeah, exactly. So as consumer investors, what that quote kind of Jeremy had said, and he said this well before I ever, um, you know, joined, was that what we're looking for a lot of the times is we're looking for a consumer company that has tapped into pop culture because often companies that are able to gain a foothold and, and tap into an element of pop culture are going to just have these natural lifts. It's going, you know, they're going to sustain a lot better. If you're fighting for every, you know, user that you acquire and trying to explain your relevance, it's, it's a lot harder of a, a business. But when you really tap that thread, businesses take off. And what we've seen time and time again is that these companies that have very early in their, their user trajectory, like maybe they are at 10,000, maybe they're at 50,000, 100,000 users, that oftentimes the user base tends to be more heavily slanted toward women and it tends to be more heavily slanted toward Black and Latino people. And so it's, you know, I don't think it's a big um shocking statement to say that a lot of the culture in the U.S. is driven by black and brown people. That's where a lot of music, Hollywood entertainment, it's not the only one, but it, it's a large, large outsized portion of the of the um, kind of sphere. And so as investors, we find the same thing to be true in consumer businesses that take off. This is what we saw on Snapchat early on. This is what we see in, um, in Cameo, another investment of ours, kind of all of these companies that have this kind of, you know, trend where they've just picked up and everyone's talking about it. People are, you know, it, it's in the, becomes part of the lingua franca at, at work. People are just talking about it. So that's something we always look for. I think it's, yeah, like you said, good bias. <laughs> Thank you. 
season two of the Black Tech Green Money podcast is brought to you by Lexus. Known for celebrating driveway moments for over 30 years, Lexus invites you to create more with exclusive offers on the most popular Lexus models at the December to Remember sales event. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I was talking with Tristan Walker from Walker & Co., maker of Bevel, about this same thing. About you know, His statement was, as you just mentioned, black culture drives all global culture. Um, whether you're thinking about music, fashion, food, and et cetera. And, you know, particularly because of the audience that we're talking to now, it's how do you then, as a startup founder, communicate that to potential investors? You don't want to walk in like, yo, I'm black, I got the thing, you know, and because we drive this, you, you got to yeah. fund me. Like, how do you communicate that in a way? Um, because there are still people that you have to educate, right, on on our, yep. our impact and our opportunity. Yeah, this is where, you know, going back to the point earlier, the translating and the deciphering the Silicon Valley language, kind of code switching, something that a lot of Black people are very familiar with and do in their everyday life when they're talking in their, you know, with their friends versus when they're speaking at work. There's something very similar for when you're speaking to Silicon Valley investors versus when you're maybe talking about your business to your customers. And I think, you know, some of the ways that you can, can phrase this is, you know, if you, <laughs> maybe you're not going to walk into the, the meeting saying exactly what you said, but you want to say, hey, we have a super engaged audience base. This is the daily active users. This is the monthly active users. This is how much session time they're spending every day in the app. This is how many friends they're inviting. This is how, you know, it, it's it's type of things that are the effects and results of having a lot of this this culture. And you could also talk about that may be the some of the results, but here's also the way I have access to get to the right people. A lot of times you know black people are very, very good at having access to a lot of different interesting people and frame that as like this is my go-to-market strategy. This is my user acquisition channel. You know, I'm using slightly different terms, but it's the same thing as saying I have a tight network of a ton of people. <laughs> I can hit them up anytime I want. And so- And they know, got the sauce, right? Yeah. Oh. And they got the sauce, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, it's it's just being able to match up some of those words and be like, I have a very sophisticated user acquisition strategy where I will be able to get a very low customer cost of acquisition, you know? <laughs> I love it. So, I love it. yeah, we just need some of that translating. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech and is produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Raven Earboard. A special thank you to Micah Davis and Sakara Savanyan, you know, like the wine, and yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Go get your money. Peace and love. Do you 
dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. AT&T connects and old to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.